Psalm 119 will read verses 113 through 120. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise, that I may live. And let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing upon our uh, sermon text this evening. Almighty God and Father, uh, your word is uh, light and lamp. Blessings and benefits are manifold as they come to us by the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ extended to us by the gracious and powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And we would ask that you would do these things even now, that you would attend the reading and the preaching of your word with the Holy Spirit and posture our hearts to receive it with faith and to respond appropriately to whatever it is that we encounter in your word, for it proceeds from you, the maker of heaven and earth. And it comes to us in the hand of the beloved Son, our King, our Lord, our Redeemer. And so we ask that you would align our hearts and our minds aright before our King and before his word. that we might be made to benefit from it and ultimately to grow in our faith, our hope, and our love. Do these things even now as you have promised to do for your people. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. You can turn in the New Testament to Romans chapter 4. Continuing through the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we come to questions 32 and 33. You'll see why we have two questions here in a moment. 32 is a a blueprint, uh, a map for the next several questions. We considered effectual calling, and so we've been considering uh, what's called redemption applied, um, how the Holy Spirit makes us participants in the saving work 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blessings, the benefits which the effectually called enjoy are set forth in question 32 and then expounded upon in the subsequent questions. So first I'll read a short passage from uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll turn our attention to the questions. Lend your attention, this is the very word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. In question 32, the Westminster Shorter asks, What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? They that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. And then question 33. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. The end of Theodore Dreiser's novel, An American Tragedy, is quite sad. The young man, Clyde Griffiths, the son of a poor Christian missionary family, who got swept up in the American dream, tasting that life of luxury and becoming so enamored by it, falling so deeply in love with it, that he was willing to take life, to kill, simply to obtain that vision of the American dream, which so tantalized him from his poor origins. The novel ends and he's guilty There's no hope of release. He's on death row and all that remains is the day of execution. Everything around him makes his sorry state plain. His bars, his prison clothes, and his fellow inmates who one by one are marched to their terrible end, communicating to him that it's just a matter of time. According to Paul, this approaches the truth of man's dreadful condition as the fallen children of Adam, condemned, guilty, with the day of execution not being a matter of if, 
but a matter of when. It's a weighty opening portrait of man that Paul introduces in the opening chapters of Romans. And if we're going to soar to the heights that Paul takes us in Romans, if we're going to rejoice with the song of deliverance and salvation, we need to feel something first of this dreadful condition from which we are saved and how particularly the provision of righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ is a remarkable, miraculous, and astounding provision from this holy God. John Murray writes, If we are to appreciate the centrality of justification to the gospel, if the jubilee trumpet is to find its echo again in our hearts, our thinking must be revolutionized by the realism of the wrath of God, of the reality and gravity of our guilt, and of the divine condemnation. It is then and only then that our thinking and feeling will be rehabilitated to an understanding of God's grace in the justification of the ungodly. The question is really not so much, how can men be just with God? But rather, how can sinful man become just with God? It's fair to say most people don't realize their dire condition. We did not before coming unto faith in Christ. And indeed, even as partakers in Christ, it's fair to say that we have only the faintest glimpse of how dire our condition was apart from the intervening grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We prove that still to this day. Every time we're slow to forgive and quick to hold a grudge. Every time we magnify the speck and minimize the log. (laughs) But we also show it in our practical tendency to functionally base our acceptance before God on our persons and works. The same ignorance towards the truly helpless condition of our guilt and condemnation before God by virtue of our works is reflected in the fact that functionally we so frequently look to our persons and our works as the basis of our acceptance before God. (laughs) Such as excluded from the realm of possibility by virtue of our former condition. Condemned! Slated to die! About to earn the wage which our works deserve. John Murray presses the question for us. What do you point to as the reason God accepts you? Is it the fact that you're overall decent? Is it the fact that you always attend church, have been baptized, regularly enjoy the supper? Is it the fact that you come from a long lineage of Christian parents? Make no mistake, blessings all are these, but not one of them are the basis for your acceptance with God. 
There is no more basic or fundamental error in the whole realm of what we call religion than to think that a man is accepted in the sight of God, that he is justified by God on the basis of what he himself is or on the basis of what he himself does. John Murray, end quote. What we are and what we've done is on display in the helpless condition of Dreiser's young man, Clyde. That's who we are by virtue of our descendant from Adam. That's what we've done as sinners who have confirmed our father's rebellion. In Adam, we are like young Clyde, confined to death row, condemned and just waiting the executioner's song. And yet, miraculously, not all is lost. (laughs) That's the stunning gospel that Paul introduces, the outset of Romans, where this righteousness of God is revealed not by the law, though the law bears witness to it, the prophets bear witness to it, but it is the gospel that reveals it, the power of God unto salvation. The glorious doctrine of justification is that by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of who he is and what he's done, God pronounces sinners to be forgiven and perfectly righteous, indeed as if they had never sinned and perfectly kept the whole law. This is the doctrine of justification, set forth so plainly here in question 33, which I heartily commend to you to memorize, and I'm sure you've already done it anyway. Let's take this definition piece by piece. First, God justifies by grace. That's how the question opens. Justification is an act of God's free grace. It's worth noting here that The confession in the catechism makes a distinction between an act and a work. It calls justification an act of God's free grace. It's going to call sanctification a work of God's free grace. An act of God is an instantaneous, perfect blessing that comes unto us instantaneous and perfect and it's true about us it is a positional a status reality whereas a work is gradual it is imperfect in this life and it is wrought in us it is a renovating reality of grace that god is working and so it's not surprising justification and adoption are acts of God's grace, according to the language of our catechism, while sanctification is a work of God's grace. Notice it is God who justifies. God is the one who justifies in grace. That's what Paul says. You can look at verses 4 and 5 in Romans 4, text we looked at. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God is the one who justifies the ungodly. 
And how does he do it? According to the passage. As a gift. <laughs> Not as a workman or an employer who's paying an employee, one who gives wages to a laborer, but rather as one in boundless benevolence bestows a gift upon an ill-deserving, ungodly sinner. Paul says it plainly in Romans 3.24, we are justified by his grace as a gift. To say that it is God who justifies confronts us with a declaration from the highest judge and the highest court conceivable. There's no appellate court. He is the highest court in the land. He is the highest judge to this world. Even our own legal systems we have higher and lower courts, all the way to the Supreme Court. And once the ruling has been handed down from the highest courts, it's binding among men. But it fails, really, this picture. It fails to grasp just how determinative God's declaration is. Because later courts can revisit earlier courts' proceedings and decisions and perhaps undo them or rework them. There is no later bench for God. The lifetime appointments of our Supreme Court still end <laughs> because they die. There's no end to this judge's tenure. <laughs> His throne is established in justice and righteousness. The decisions are final. The verdicts are final. The pronouncement coming down from him and his court. It's irreversible. To the one whom the Lord pronounces righteous, as Paul's going to say later, who is there to condemn? Like what, what other word is there? There's no other word. Sometimes you do get to the end of the matter. Most things are endlessly deferred. Not this one. We reach the end. We reach the top or the bottom. Whatever it is, it's final. But to say that God justifies by grace as a gift, that's to highlight the origins of such a declaration and to find it rooted in his infinite and boundless store of goodness which subsequently disabuses us of any notion that we can earn such a verdict. That we can generate obligation on God's behalf by the virtue of who we are and what we have done. In fact, Paul goes well out of his way to make plain that this is the opposite pronouncement than the one we should expect when he says he justifies the ungodly. <laughs> he justifies the ungodly. He calls us the ungodly. Nay. He calls Abraham the ungodly. Oh. He calls David the ungodly. Isn't that implied in the text? Who's he talking about here? He's talking about Abraham. He's talking about David. If you were a Jew and you were looking for the best people who ever walked the earth... Who would you point to? You would point to Abraham. You would point to David. How were they classified according to Paul? Ungodly. How were they justified according to Paul? By faith. 
by faith in the God who justifies ungodly Abraham, ungodly David, ungodly you and me, for all have fallen short. All have sinned. John Chrysostom, we don't quote the fathers very often. John Chrysostom states the matter plainly. For a person who has no works to be justified by faith was nothing unlikely. But for a person richly adorned with good deeds, not to be made just from these, but from faith, this is a thing to cause wonder and to set the power of faith in an astonishing light. It's not just our ill deeds from which we need to be justified. It's our good deeds which showcase our need to be justified, to state the matter polemically there. I'm trying to capitalize on the reasoning of Paul. Paul's engaging polemically with his Jewish interlocutors who would have insisted Abraham showed himself a good man. (laughs) David, who showed himself a good man. That even these were justified by faith. We can go on to ask what exactly takes place in our justification. We're forgiven and we're counted righteous. Westminster Shorter states the matter this way. He pardons all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight. These are our great needs before our holy God. As those who have violated his law and stand in a broken covenant of works by virtue of Adam's disobedience. First, we've all sinned. Paul says this plainly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is there anyone here who's going to dispute this? Children, have you ever disobeyed your parents? Parents, have you ever been harsh with your children? Men, have you ever looked upon a woman with lustful intent? Women, have you ever envied another woman or her house, her husband, her children? Have you ever stolen, lied, sex outside of marriage, even obfuscation of the truth? And that's just part of the second table. (laughs) We are all deep in the debt of sin. There is none who can say, I have no need for forgiveness from on high. Notice how this lays all of us equally low. The first flash of fire which forges our unity is Romans 3, 22 and 23. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the first flash of our unity. Imagine Clyde Griffiths, Dreiser's young man on death row, rising up in arrogance to condemn another death row inmate. Ah, yes, I killed my victim by drowning, but you, you shot yours. Dreadful, really. My victim deserved it, but yours, I'm sure yours was innocent in spite of everything you protest to the contrary, you scoundrel. It's preposterous. It's ridiculous. And we do it all the time. (laughs) The call in the face of such a laying low is what? Let us be clothed in compassion and kindness towards one another. For we are so very similar in this regard that we are all sinners. We are all in desperate need of the same forgiveness, the same 
blood was necessary to be shed for my sins as your sins. Doesn't this open up a different view of one another? Doesn't this beg for more of an understanding and compassion towards one another? May this have its good softening effect. And may it have its preparatory effect for the breath of fresh air that's about to follow. And Paul cites Psalm 32 writing, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. How shameful are so many of our sins looking back and the blush that creeps over our heart at the the folly, the egregiousness, the shamefulness that has attended so much of what we have done, so much of what we think, so much of what we feel is forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's covered in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pardoned in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in part, but in full. Because atonement, satisfaction has been rendered. In the grace of justification, we receive the full forgiveness of sins. Rejoice. This is not a fake gift. But that's not all. If I have my filthy rags removed, am I fit for a gala? Certainly not. Imagine showing up to a black tie event wearing nothing. You're just as unfit naked in such a place as in filthy rags. I've got to have the proper attire to be admitted to a gala. Or as John Murray switches the metaphor, God cannot be satisfied simply with the blotting out of debt. In order to have acceptance with him, there must be full credit and credit that is unto everlasting life. The double blessing of justification is both the full forgiveness of sins and being credited Christ's perfect righteousness. Paul writes, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. One pastor uses the simple picture of a parent telling a child to clean their room. Children, do your parents ever tell you to clean your room? Harkening back to the earlier question, do you always obey? (laughs) What happens if you disobey? Well, then there's the matter of the disobedience that was wrong. That's a violation of God's law that says honor your father and mother. That's one matter. But then there's also the matter of the need for the clean room. (laughs) In the Lord Jesus Christ, not only is the disobedience forgiven but we're credited with having cleaned the room. Though he is the one who has cleaned it for us. How? How are we made participants in such a remarkable gift? First, through the instrument of faith. Now I trust you heard the difficulty that at least suggests itself with verse 5. The question is, is faith an instrument? Is faith the instrument of justification or is faith the basis of justification you can hear in the verse verse 5 why some have concluded that faith is the basis of justification paul writes his faith is counted as righteousness 
So the question is, does God look at our faith, which is something wrought in us, and just choose to consider that righteousness? A certain superficial reading in the text would suggest so, and many have concluded based on this verse and others. They say, yes, that's exactly what's happening. This is a classic Arminian position. It's a variation of the Roman Catholic position for something wrought in us. God is willing to see that, and though it's not strictly considered righteousness, he's willing to count it as righteousness. But it's a false impression for a number of reasons. First, the rest of Scripture states plainly that we're justified through faith. We're justified by faith and not on the basis of faith. That's what we heard in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified instrumental preposition, linguistic nerdity, (laughs) by faith, we have peace with God. Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the instrument by which we come into possession of the grace of justification. But we can also observe the way that Paul sets up his picture in Romans 4. Paul sets up the counter image of what takes place in works with a simple business picture, one we're all familiar with. If you work, you earn wages. I assume you all do this or have done it. You understand this dynamic. What happens? You labor. You generate obligation on behalf of your employer. And then the employer fulfills that obligation in the rendering of wages unto you. Paul says this cannot be the mechanism of our justification. First of all, it can't be the mechanism of our justification because then we'd have grounds for boasting. And that's the very thing he's out to disprove in this section. That's what he says. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. He is very interested in making sure that no one has any reason to boast. If it's earned, then there's boastability. You can use that word. If it's earned, then there's some sense in which the earner has a reason to boast. Paul says boasting is excluded. It can't be boasting. But that's not the only reason this dynamic cannot produce justification. The second reason that it cannot produce justification is we know what we've earned. We know what our wages should be. Paul says this plainly. The wages of sin is death. What have the ungodly earned by virtue of this dynamic? Work, obligate, wage, death, wrath, curse, judgment. That way is closed to us. So then what remains? Well, how does Romans 6.23 finish? If the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life. What does faith do? Faith receives. Faith is an empty, open hand into which God places his gift. So this other dynamic, parallel to the first course of work and wage, is believe and gift. That's what Paul says, the one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted, credited. It's a a bookkeeping. It's an accounting 
metaphor. What's credited to one who works? Wages are credited unto him. So this thing is coming to this person as they engage in the dynamic of working. So as one engages in the dynamic of believing, the gift of justification is coming unto them. Faith itself is not the basis for that, but rather the instrument by which it comes to the sinner. This righteousness comes to us from God's gracious provision and received by faith. I've already hinted at why faith is such a fitting instrument. Faith looks away from oneself because it finds nothing sound in the self. Faith fixes itself upon an object because it knows it possesses nothing inherently that is sound. This is why faith even differentiates itself from love as an appropriate instrument. Love fixates upon an object, an object of great worth. But love says nothing about the worth of the beholder. Love says nothing about the soundness of the beholder. Love beholds a wonderful object and loves it, but faith beholds its object because there is nothing sound in the beholder. Thus, it is a most fitting instrument and mechanism to remove boasting and attribute all glory to God in this gift of salvation. But faith as the instrument raises this question of where does this righteousness come from? Is this something that God just makes up on the spot? Is this a legal fiction, as many have charged the Reformed doctrine with holding? For this, we go back to the beginning of Romans. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Where does righteousness come from? It comes from God. It's something that God supplies. It's that which only God can supply. And it's that which he is pleased to supply. To ruin sinners unto the glory of his name. You can go back to the embarrassing gala. Our God has found us in our filthy rags. And he's exchanged those filthy rags for the glorious garment of righteousness in which he clothes us, such that we now have proper standing at the gala of his holy and glorious presence. But we can say one more thing specifically about this righteousness. The sure ground of our justification is nothing other than the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ which he himself established by his blameless life and the perfect satisfaction of God in the suffering which he undertook as our substitute. John Flavel asks, If it be asked how it can stand with God's justice and holiness to pronounce us innocent when we are guilty, righteous when we are ungodly, the answer is that Christ has made perfect satisfaction for our fault. And thus God may in justice pronounce us righteous. It is a just thing for a creditor to discharge a debt, a debtor of the debt when a satisfaction is made by the surety. This is no legal fiction. 
This is not something made up on the spot. This is a pronouncement of justice as God views the sinner in the Lord Jesus Christ as having atoned for the wrath that should have been poured out upon that sinner and having established the righteousness according to the law that the sinner could not and did not produce. How sweet of a balm is this for our souls? This sure ground. This solid foundation. How many are our failings as the children of God? How many sins attend our days? How often do we stumble and fall? How frequently we become temporarily deranged by the madness of sin. And how quickly our enemy is at our side in those instances saying, guilty, guilty, condemned, condemned. And the trajectory of despair that opens thereupon. The doctrine of justification says in those moments we can respond, yes, guilty is the verdict that my sins deserve. And the sentence upon these sins is more terrible still. But God has not dealt with me according to my sins. He has not left me to my terrible wages. For it is neither my failings or my successes. It is neither my sins nor my graces which are the basis of my acceptance with my God. It is His Son. It is His perfect righteousness and satisfaction. That is all my hope and stay, now and forevermore. Let's pray. Our great God, this provision of righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ, the supply, Father, of glorious garments, though we were clothed in filthy rags, May we see it with the eyes of faith. May we hear it with fresh ears attuned to the wonders of your grace, the glory of your Son, the excellencies of his person and work, and the riches that have passed unto us. May we be positioned to stand aright in this wonderful doctrine, boasting only in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has made for us righteousness, pray, Father, that as you orient our hearts to these things, that our lives would reflect the truth that we belong to him more and more day by day. For we ask in Christ, amen.